If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News. How's it going, Alex? I am doing fantastically. I am back on the East Coast, which is good. It is uh, kind of that weird like fall bit when it's too cold for fall, and you kind of wish winter would kick in, but it hasn't yet. Um, so I'm hanging out, yeah. I'm jealous. It's 80 degrees in San Francisco. Do you have AC? No, who has AC? I just, uh, I never did. Nobody has AC in San Francisco. It's, yeah. it's very hot. It's hot every day this week. There's no end in sight. There's no fall. I miss Seattle. Don't get me started. Well, the ironic part is the final uh, level of Dante's Inferno is actually cold. So you have one more to go. And if you get that joke, 10 points. All right. Uh, let's, we have a lot to get through this week. So why we don't do, we just we dig do. in? And, uh, and we're going to kick it off with a controversial micro fund, I think, Kate. Yeah, so I wrote a story this week about the founder of Superhuman raising capital for his debut angel fund. So in the grand scheme of things, this is just a $4 million fund. So it's quite small. It's known as a micro fund, which is, you know, the term that you just used because it's so small. The reason it's interesting and the reason I wrote about it is because this founder, the founder of a very popular subscription-based luxury email service, Superhuman, you know, yeah, he's a notable guy. So I think I, I figured people would be interested in learning what he is working on. As far as I know, they've not, you know, committed capital for this fund yet, but they are sending around a pitch deck, which I got my hands on, to LPs to sort of uh, figure out who might want to invest in this fund. Already, Rahul Vora, Rahul Vora is his name. Is that Does that sound right to you, Alex, pronunciation-wise? I would give that a B plus. All right. So he has already invested in a bunch of different companies. He's invested in Sandbox VR, which is creating premium VR experiences in retail so whatever that means mercury which is a bank a banking startup that is catering to other startups commandy mm-hmm. which is an instant cloud search tool and there's a bunch of other ones you guys can read the article about it and, and learn more about that but i think the reason we wanted to talk about it on equity today is because it is controversial in that he is also a founder of a series b startup that has a lot of growing to do before it's sort of in a sustainable smooth sailing place which actually startups are never in so yeah. it's tough. It's a tough, I mean, I don't know, Alex, do you think, is it reasonable to run a fund at the same time you're running a startup? So startups are a lot of work. Everyone, everyone knows that. It's kind of a cliche that startups are hard, but I mean, they're, they're really, 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 really hard. They're hard day in, day out. It's an enormous grind. And Superhuman has been hot in and around Silicon Valley. I mean, you and I both heard of it. I almost signed up for it. Um, so there's probably been less struggle thus far in Superhuman's life than I think a startup would have already gone through maybe to reach its kind of current size and, and uh, notoriety. So it may seem like there's plenty of time to have a, I think it's a $4 million debut angel fund. But in reality, to me, it seems like a distraction. And, you know, I'm not opposed to founders making angel investments. As you and I both know, and probably everyone listening, that's relatively common. It's not, it's not, I mean, Aaron Levy from Box didn't not write checks probably back in the day. Right. But having a fund set up, being answerable to LPs, trying to generate you know, outsized returns for people, sounds like a distraction for someone who's trying to build a company that is raised. Uh, I think at last, last round was $33 million at a $260 million valuation. So he needs to defend yes. a quarter billion dollars while also making a bunch of investments. It just seems yeah. distracting. And Superhuman is only going to grow larger. I mean, it does 
it does apparently have a 100,000 plus wait list. Um, there are people who do want to use it. I, I, you know, I think it has a long road ahead and I think a lot of growth ahead. The thing is, though, so raising a fund and deploying capital from a fund is not just about, you know, finding startups to invest in. It's you invest in those startups and in theory, you actually support them as they build. So you're there taking calls, you're helping them. And, and you know, they say that being a seed investor is the most time consuming because you are working with companies that are pretty much nothing that are trying really hard to get off the ground. And those are that's a very, very difficult time. So I guess you know, obviously you and I have no idea how much time he intends to actually spend with companies. And maybe he just wants to write them a check and say, hey, I'm kind of busy. But he probably does want to be somewhat hands-on, which is why it's it's surprising that he is trying to do both at the same time. And I don't know how his investors feel, though I did notice that most of his companies are, are companies that are backed by Andreessen Horowitz, who is one of his main investors. So it kind of seems like they're in this together and he's kind of a scout of sorts for the fund. Or has he put together kind of like a founder focused sidecar fund for himself to, to help power Andreessen investments? I mean, yeah, there's there's funny, there's ways to make this sound financially intelligent. Like We can find a way to, to, to spin it and make it sound good. But fundamentally, I think he's the CEO of, of, of this really, really hot company. You would think that he might want to spend all of his time where where the bet is paying off already. Like he can probably generate outsized personal wealth by making, you know, superhuman do 30% better than he can do by making his small fund be an impressive, uh, you know, financial entity of its own right. So to me, it seems distracting. Um, and I think this might be peak seed fund, Kate, this might be the, uh, the, the epitome of it, because we've gone from founders being angels, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think you said before the show that they, they became super angels. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing uh, what do you want to call it? Like the era I mean, of the micro fund? Or yeah, what? I mean, like kind of like we're seeing them. I don't know. It's not the right saying they're institutional VCs is not correct because they're not. But I mean, we're seeing them inch closer to that. We're seeing them go from, like I said, angels who are making, you know, maybe like Aaron Levy, you mentioned maybe making an investment here, an investment there um, to super angels, which is, you know, someone who is prolifically investing in startups. And then we're seeing them actually kind of institutional, institutionalize themselves sort of by raising outside capital to invest. So this is a new... This is like the next step. Um, and like in my in my article that I wrote about this, I said something like, oh, this could be a threat to VCs. But I, and then I also said, in reality, it's actually not at all because many VCs actually invest in these micro funds, which is funny. <laughs> so it's just all the money going back to the same place. But um, yeah. in theory, it could it could pose a threat if they if they grew larger and they and they went to the same LPs that VCs have. But micro funds typically can't raise from these institutional LPs because they're just not as established and they can't attract endowment funds, you know? Yeah. And also they're not going to be as attractive. I mean, like we had um, Charles Hudson on the show at Disrupt a few weeks back and he's at the, at the earlier stage of seed is my impression of what he Mm -hmm. does. Who would you rather give money to someone like precursor who actually does this for a living and this is their bread and butter or someone who's doing this nights and weekends well in between taking calls for their startup. I mean, to me, it just seems a less focused way, but there's a celebrity element to this, which is because Superhuman is so hot, maybe having this guy in someone's deal makes it appear more attractive and other investors want to get in because it's more savvy or maybe it's branding, I want to say. Yeah, I mean, founders want like founders want other founders on their cap table, maybe because of the celebrity element, maybe because they truly, I mean, maybe there's a bit of founder worship. Maybe they really respect them and really do want their insight. Superhuman is very well aware of its own reputation and as such, they know they can get in hot deals. 
So yes, I think there's definitely a celebrity element. I think they're using it to their advantage, but I think there's nothing wrong with doing that. They, yeah. they know they can get in good deals and they did. One of the examples they provided is Tandem, which I wrote about and we definitely have talked about, which the, which was that YC startup that was like the standout company. You know, I've yet to see real evidence that it will become something special, but investors certainly think it is and we're vying for it as if it was like the next Airtable or whatever. So. Hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. So let's let's go ahead and leave the micro funds and the and the new tech celebrities and go to the macro funds and the old school tech celebrities and talk about what is going on at Founders Fund. Now, Peter Thiel is probably the most famous part of Founders Fund. I think Cyan Bannister is over there as well. I think yep. she's she's been on the show. Uh, Cyan's great. They're raising an enormous capital pool for a different couple of different reasons. I think it's going to be about two point seven billion dollars total, and of that, they're going to have a billion and a half set aside to make, I don't know, Kate, super late stage bets, for lack of a better term. Like this feels a little bit poorly timed, given that we've seen some cracks in some late stage companies that we've seen some people discussing kind of a flight to quality, like the idea that growth is going to lose some of its, um, I don't know, attractiveness as companies pursue a bit more of an efficient model. And to put together an enormous capital pool this late in the cycle to maybe put off some IPOs for some companies strikes me as almost a bit tone deaf, but then again, I'm not being given a billion dollars. Maybe I'm wrong, but how did, how did you read this news when it came yeah, out? Yeah, I think given the timing of all that's been happening with WeWork, which we will talk about later in this episode, um, it does come off a bit tone deaf. But I mean, you know, as we've said, and as everyone's kind of saying, WeWork, as much as it does represent sort of um, venture capitalists' failure to accurately value a company, it is, it's an outlier. So it's, it's not, it's not representative of all of companies. Like this is not all companies that are highly valued that have raised a lot of money are going to end in epic failure. So what I'm trying to say is the timing is not great and it does come off as tone deaf, but I think it's, I mean, I think there's probably some strategy behind it. To, to be honest, I'm not quite sure why they, why they want to invest so much money so late. I know, I know that they surely want to ex- expand their own stakes and some of their best performers. But other yeah. than that, like, are they, do you think they're going to be making new investments entirely in just super, super late stage companies? I mean, why not? So one, an article that I read this week was about um, not IPOs, but FPOs, I think it was in Bloomberg, about final private offerings. Like this idea that you raise this last big chunk of capital before you go public or do a direct list. Back in, I mean, there, there's been different terms for this, like mezzanine rounds, I think back in the day and so yeah. forth. But, you know, if you can go ahead and buy into a company at a 30% discount to what you think it'll be worth at IPO, and you can use a $100 million check to do that, why not? I mean, especially if you have a good brand, a good view of the market. So I, I get it, but like, you have to have pretty good faith in the ability for public markets to take um, signal from private markets and also mark them up a bit when the companies do go public. And oftentimes that works. Like Datadog has done fine. Cloudflare has done fine. But a lot of companies, not just WeWork, not just Uber, not just Lyft, have struggled uh, in the public markets this year that have gone public this year and have struggled. And so I'm less certain of how how well that will go. At the same time, Stripe is doing great, right? Everyone's, everyone says Stripe's doing fine. So if they give Stripe some money, that strikes me as perfectly reasonable, but Stripe doesn't probably totally. need it. So who does? Totally. I mean, if you're, if you're investing late sta- super late stage in Stripe, no one's going to be like, what the hell are you doing? But I think, like I said, it's just because this last month has been completely defined by report after report concerning WeWork's massive fuck-ups. And so I think 
everyone right now is, is sensitive to highly valued late stage companies. So seeing a fund that's really dedicated to keeping those companies private is, is interesting. And, you know, it, it also goes against that message that we need companies to go public because we need the liquidity. We need these big liquidity events. Like when Uber and Lyft hadn't gone out, everyone was like, oh my God, why are companies staying private so long? And then I think now that they've gone out, people are like already rewriting history or like it's a little bit of revisionist history. Like, oh, well, that was fine. Let's just keep doing that. Well, to be clear, the, on the we point, you and I don't need these companies to go public, but yes, there's a we, lot of people who are sweating. You and I definitely don't care if they go public or not. No. We just write about it. I've, but yes, we being like, I guess we being just like the community of people who are interested and concerned with um, the markets as a whole, which we vaguely fit in that. Oh, yeah. no, we fit in that as observers who are super yes. curious about what's going to happen. But I just want to point out that um, there's, there's people out there who have a financial stake in this that are sweating a lot more than, than you and I as we watch from the side. You're not going to make a couple million bucks when Stripe goes public? Um, I mean, I'll tell you this. If, that, if I am going to make a couple million bucks when it goes public, it's going to be a big surprise to me because no one has told me that I'm involved in that company <laughs> at all. So I, don't, I haven't even met Patrick. So like, I mean, I yeah, literally have no I. context. Why doesn't he hang out with us? I, that's kind of hey, he feels really far away. Speaking of Stripe, they officially are moving their headquarters out of SF. All the way to South San Francisco. Hey, it's a different city. Someone told me. They said you didn't know that. I I've only lived here a year, and I'm sorry, but that's confusing to call a city that's not in San Francisco South San Francisco. I did not mean that question in a rude manner. It's confusing. I, I actually think that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think I used to date someone in South San Francisco back in the day. That's quite the commute. It's a long distance relationship. Yeah, and then I said I wouldn't do that again, and then I married someone on the different coast. So, so much for See plans. how that worked out. Um, no, it worked out well. Great. Well, but you also moved terribly. to <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're getting off. She track. doesn't listen to the show, so it's fine. Um, it's a bunch of money. It's super late stage capital. It's a bit contrarian because it is this late in the cycle. If the IPO window closes, it's risky. But contrarian is what they do. And to this point, I believe it's the founders fund crew that I put together an event. Um, I'm going to just take a shot at this Hereticon. Kate, yes. you want to talk about this. What is Hereticon? Yeah, so we never actually got the chance to talk about it. And this was something that was announced on October 1st. So it was right before Disrupt. So it's kind of a crazy period, which I think is why we didn't get into it. Yeah, so Founders Fund is putting together a conference for heretics, which they defined as ideological outcasts. Um, from Galileo to Jesus Christ, heretical thinkers have been met with hostility, even death, and vindicated by prosperity. They've got a Medium post on this conference. A lot of people were concerned that this would be a place for some very evil people on the internet to find a safe space. But I think that they, you know, they've yet to make any clarifications who they are inviting. So I think it's too early to get too upset over this concept. I think we just need to wait and see what they're thinking. But I will say it's interesting that a venture capital fund is putting on a conference like this okay so we're going right like yeah i mean hopefully they'll allow some I, and this kind of seems like something where they're just not going to want any press but I don't, I don't know i mean i'll go just ask myself like one i love new orleans like bring it on i will go there and eat all the so food. i think you can buy tickets to it there's a wait list so i mean well maybe we can jump the line this sounds like a fun place to go and meet people i disagree with and, and meet people that i wouldn't otherwise get to hang out with and that to me is, is the idea right Yes, I think that is the idea. On the list of stuff is like transhumanism, the abolition of college, um, sex, the softer side of doomsday prepping. Like I want to go meet the people who I disagree with on those topics because I better be fascinating. And I do spend a lot of time between an intellectual bubble on the East Coast and a financial tech bubble on the West Coast. So to me, let's go to New Orleans and get crazy. I mean, why not? We spend so much time worrying about brand and image and all this crap. Right. Let's go meet some people that have, you know, pierced brains. Sure. It's interesting. It, there's a VC tie. So it's likely going to be within our um, interest to pay attention to how this goes. But, and hey, maybe maybe you'll actually go. I don't, I don't really know if I uh, want to go. 
All right. Well, equity, May 2020, get weird in New Orleans edition. Yeah. New Orleans. Hey, I'll go to New Orleans. I'll go to New Orleans for sure. Okay. Well, we can, <laughs> well, we can find something to work. Founders Fund, email me. All right. Moving on from Hereticon and all things New Orleans, let's talk about uh, scooters very, very briefly. I know this topic's a bit of a hangover from people that have listened to the show for a couple of years, but there's some new data. Okay. I'm just going to run through some numbers really quick and then we can kind of scoot on, but I just want to, I want to make sure we've talked about this at least once. Scoot on. Perfect. Uh, so according to the information, a great report by uh, Corey Weinberg, who's fantastic. It appears that Lime is looking to lose or expects to lose about $300 million this year off of revenue of about $420 million. Now I'm presuming that those are numbers that are not uh, equivalent to its uh, possible free cash flow or really negative free cash flow. As you recall from the WeWork S1, there are, there are operating losses, net losses in one kind of bucket, and there's also like investing cash flow in a different one. So we do not have a full financial picture of the company, but what we do know is that in terms of like kind of gap-ish accounting, things are very, very unprofitable over there. Not a huge surprise. Uh, 420 million in revenue for this year is, seems like a pretty big number. I don't, I don't think we can mock that. The losses are, are quite large, but also that's a lot of growth. Uh, the other thing that was notable is that they broke down some notes about how the company's cost of revenue shapes up. And it looks like about 40% of rev goes to kind of local operations, about 17% on charging. And then there's this bucket of 35% uh, of, of gross rev that kind of goes to depreciation. And I did some research, Kate, about where that would go in a company's um, income statement. And most of the time, depreciation does not go into cost of revenue because it's not really applicable. And it goes into a different line item lower on in the income statement. So it impacts operating results, but not kind of like gross margins. In Lime's case, I think it should be in cost of revenue, given that we're talking about the scooters that actually allow the revenue to happen, mm-hmm. at which point their gross margins are really minuscule. And that's my concern. So reading this, um, I had a Less pessimistic than I expected, but somewhat negative view of the company's business. But I wanted to, of course, um, leave space for your commentary. When you okay. read this, what was your impression? Yeah, I mean, I think you're. I think you're a lot more savvy with financials than I am. But I think I. I did. I. My first reaction was like, I think that Lime is smartly investing a lot right now into their hardware to develop um, scooters that are a lot more reliable and can stay on the market a lot longer. Because the one of the big problems with these scooter companies is the scooters that they deployed were breaking down after three to four months, which meant they had to put, you know, pull them off the road. They're done for. So that's money that they invested that's now down the drain. So if they can make scooters that can last one year at a time, say, they're able to have much, much more appealing unit economics, which is better for top line in the end. So I think right now, Lime is in a period in which they're putting a lot of money into actually creating these better scooters. And I think once they've gotten out out of that hole a bit, things are going to start to improve, which is what we've seen happen with Bird. Bird had to develop, you know, its own proprietary scooter technology and I, you know i'm sure lime has done the same and because of that they've improved their unit economics i mean it, these are these are hard businesses both i, I don't know what's going to happen to either bird or lime i think t- every single week i have someone you know sending me a tip that's some vague thing like oh bird and lime one of them is ra- having a hard time raising 500 million dollars well yeah i mean raising that much money is hard and creating you know, these micro mobility businesses has proven to be quite difficult. So I'm kind of like, you know, I, I love these updates. I, I loved this report from the information because I'm very interested in, in Lime's financials. So I was, I was glad to see that one, you know, journalist did get their hands on those numbers. And um, I'm interviewing the co-founder of Lime at an event in China in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited to ask about this and I hope that the company doesn't pull out for any reason. Yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. We will talk about whatever you get from that on the show yeah. uh, in time. 
they're always raising money. These companies, as, as you as you like to say, so it's it's hard to say when they stop. I think when Bird raised its last round, we got kind of crossed because we thought it had closed and then it hadn't. Then it was still open. Well, they're not the most it. transparent about it. Which is irksome because they don't need to not be, but they right. choose to be because it, it's it, it's in their their That's, operating interest. Yeah. It's hard, therefore, to know how much cash they might have. It's hard to know, therefore, when they are particularly well capitalized, and therefore, it's hard to know how they're doing. All that said, the only reason why I disagree with anything you've said in your, your riff there was that they have been working on better hardware for some time. They have been trying to develop new scooters. Lime has launched one. Bird has launched one. Mm-hmm. And we're still not seeing... Like we're still at that bottom of that cycle of which they're still spending a lot. You mean, do you think they'll be able to get out of that? Or are they going to continue to having to burn through a lot of cash to keep these scooters on the on the market or on the road? Well, no matter what happens, they're going to burn through a lot of cash. Like I think that's just the a The cash fact. intensive question, businesses. Hardware is expensive. Hardware is hard. And they're, but what they have, the magic here is that people love their actual product. Like I, I see people on these scooters because people really dig them. You know, that's, that's the reason why people are throwing so much money at this. The question is just, can they figure out the model and the economics before they run out of investor patience? And, you know, I don't know which one of us is going to be correct. Traditionally, we're both wrong. Well, given and I, different- I'm not saying that I'm extremely optimistic about scooter or scooter economics, uh, the future of these scooter companies. I do think that Bird and Lime have ambitions of going public and expanding to become full stack mobility companies, kind of like Uber becoming a global transportation business, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think they, do I think it will work? I have no idea. So I'm definitely not, like I would not invest in a scooter company uh, if I were an investor, but I, I guess I'm just, I'm very uncertain. I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I mean, it's good perspective to have. I, I hope they survive. I think their product is cool. I hope everyone can yeah. scoot around and we have fewer cars on the road. So fundamentally- Micromobility like, is a good thing. Yeah. I think we're, we all agree with that, especially if you've ever taken an Uber in San Francisco, you know how great traffic can be. Yep. Um, so I, I, I'm, I will just say Bon Voyage Lime and, and please make it work because I don't want to walk. Bon Voyage Lime, please make it work. I, I like that. <laughs> um, okay. Let's, uh, let's do the hard thing for the week and let's talk really briefly about, about WeWork. Um, okay. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you're probably tired of this. Um, they just keep doing things that are interesting and fit into our worlds. So we have to touch on it. Sorry. Uh, we'll be fast. Um, summarizing really briefly, Kate. SoftBank has come to the rescue. Their package was selected over a rescue package from JP Morgan. And here is kind of the way that I see it. There's going to be a $5 billion new financing, which Bloomberg has described as a loan. So it's debt. Um, There is going to be a $3 billion tender offer for shares that are already in the market, employees and so forth. And they're going to speed up an existing $1.5 billion SoftBank commitment. And as part of this broader package of things, Adam Newman is being given $185 million as a way to essentially get rid of him and get rid of his ability to control the company with the super voting shares because they never actually got rid of his 10 votes per share uh, like they were going to. So they had to find some other way to kind of get him out of the way. Uh, is there anything that you've read that I didn't include in that, that mm-hmm. that's useful? I think you got everything. I mean, the, the key takeaways that are SoftBank did give WeWork a lifeline and they're paying Adam Newman a ridiculous sum to just get the hell out of there. Um, Though, you know, we say things like saved WeWork and gave them a lifeline. I mean, I'm not confident by any means that WeWork can be saved. Um, I did read that SoftBank is now actually contracting WeWork out to like remodel their headquarters and they're encouraging WeWork to actually, sorry, they're encouraging their own portfolio companies to contract WeWork services as a means to give them business. I mean, that is, the opposite of sustainable. So I'm, I'm not confident, but um, the 
SoftBank representative that they've sent in, Marcelo Claire, Marcelo Claire, Claire, made some sort of uh, speech that was leaked. Was that today? I believe the transcript of the All Hands was released on Thursday via Recode. And yeah. right, and it's very interesting. I encourage you to read it. He says things like. There's a there's a zero percent chance that we're going bankrupt. There's zero risk of this company ceasing to exist. That is all behind us. Uh, we're going to double the size of this company in the next nine months. Which I mean, that I wonder because I mean they've laid off hundreds. They're planning to lay off thousands. I think the latest report from the Financial Times said that WeWork was going to cut thirty percent of its global workforce. Yeah. So the way that I read that was, that I think he was talking about like buildings, not employees, and maybe they're going to be working on, on building other kind of like actual IRL footprint. What's fascinating about the comment about doubling the size of the company and there being zero risk is that earlier on in his presentation, he said, make no mistake, the world has changed. The growth stories don't sell anymore. And then later on, he's talking about growth. So I'm not sure about what he was trying to say, but at the same time, if you're an exec up there, you have to pitch something optimistic, something kind of that you can believe in, that you want to stick around for. So we can't get up there and say, we're going to be half as big in 12 months. You know, you can't, that doesn't make any sense. So of course not. I'm, I got to say reading the transcript, which by the way, great to recode for getting big points for that. I thought I was cautiously optimistic. This is obviously an exec who, who knows what they're doing. I don't know if we're going to agree with their choices, but they seem decisive. They seem grounded in like regular accounting um, and not kind of like community and woo. So that, that was my read. You're cautiously optimistic. You're you you're optimistic about WeWork? No, I'm optimistic about their executive selection. Okay. Hmm. If that person is enough to write the ship and save the company, super unclear to me. I would probably say no, having read the S one and watching the company nearly run out of cash when they had two and a half billion like four months ago. I mean, I know it's crazy because the end goal is still to go public, and imagine them even trying to do that in a year. Like, think of how their narrative is just their narrative is just completely destroyed. The reputation is destroyed. I think any people that were bullish on WeWork are just completely turned. It's just hard to imagine at any point that WeWork is going to somehow be success, like complete a successful IPO. And of course, if they end up like just shaving their losses so much, which we remember we talked about, their losses were exceeding, um, you know, any any revenue that they were bringing in, they were just completely underwater. Um, I guess in that case, maybe uh, the market will t- take a turn and, and be a little bit more uh, receptive of this IPO, but I just have a really hard time um, imagining either of those things to happen. And I think even with this $5 billion bailout from SoftBank, WeWork still has to cut down a lot. It has to yeah. has to do a lot of layoffs. Like these employees are in a shit, shit position. And yeah, I mean, it sucks for a lot of people. It does. But I want to go ahead and just and, and grab one final quote to explain to everyone the scale of, of the bet that SoftBank has now made. Because we've been talking about SoftBank and WeWork as a kind of conjoined entity for so long. Um, you can forget the numbers. And, and Marcelo said, the size of the commitment that SoftBank has made to the company in the past and now is $18.5 billion. That is a, I mean, nigh insane amount of money. So at a minimum, this is going to be an enormous institutional push to make this work in some degree. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the business case. Uh, this is not where I thought we were going to be three months ago. I don't know where, where we're going to be in three months watching the story. But um, if you don't want to hear about WeWork ever again, I think you're going to have to like throw your phone in the lake and burn your laptop and all that because this is going to still be a story. Can I, can I do that? Throw my phone into the lake and burn my laptop? Are you, are you independently wealthy? No. <laughs> well, then you can't do that. Sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, if you don't have to work, then yes. Now, you can just... now everybody knows I'm not independently wealthy, Alex. Well, you, yeah, you're the first journalist not to just be. Just outed me. Um, let's let's go back to kind of like some equity roots and talk about an early stage thing. So, Kate, what's Vendor? Vendor is a very early stage startup that graduated from Y Combinator this, let's see, what is this summer? Um, and they just raised a small $2 million round, or at least they just sort of came out and talked about it with me. Um, you know, as companies do, they wait months to do that. Vendor is a enterprise SaaS solution for managing enterprise SaaS. So that basically means they have created software that helps companies manage and upgrade their existing enterprise SaaS solutions. Um, so typically when you are a big company that needs uh, to sign a contract with an enterprise SaaS company, you know, because you want to use their software, you have one of your salespeople get in touch with one of their salespeople or whatever it might be. Maybe they sell directly to your CFO, whatever. The point is it requires human beings. Um, but if you use vendor, you can sort of cut human beings out of that. And the the concept's not meant to destroy an entire field. It, but although it does kind of, you know, it, it has the opportunity or the possibility to kind of put an end to enterprise sales, which, um, I mean, it, that could lose, uh, that could lead to loss of jobs, but it would save companies a lot of money and it would eliminate persuasion driven sales, which is, I mean, annoying to pretty much anyone. Right. I mean, yeah, vendor is cool. And I like, I like the idea, but it's not going to do away with like sales teams at SaaS companies. Like it, it can probably yeah. augment certain things it will augment. and make some, Certainly. Yeah. It will augment, it'll automate some processes. It will cut them out, cut out some of those human to human conversations that people don't like having. Um, but you still need, you know, like customer support teams and things like that. So I, it won't put an end to the sales profession, but I think it will, I mean, it could definitely allow companies to scale down those efforts a little bit. Um, and it's clearly working. The company's already profitable, um, which is pretty, yeah. I mean, that's not something you see very often actually at all, especially for like a company just out of YC. It hit 1 million in ARR and it's 14 months um, that it's been that it's existed. Monthly recurring revenue is sitting at 96,500. And Alex, I know you ran the numbers, which I thought was really interesting. So tell us like what the future of this company looks like. Okay. So first of all, big props to vendor for just telling us things like, thank you. I know I, I, I love this. And I didn't even ask. And he, he was like, Oh, Hey, like you want to know my ARR and my blah, blah, blah. I was like, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> Tattoo it on my back. Let's do it. <laughs> Uh, if you if you want to get covered, uh, the easiest way to get covered, at least with me as a writer, is to tell me your financial numbers. And so here they are. And look, they're on the show. Um, anyways, vendors growing at 15% month over month. So each month is 15% bigger than the month before. That will probably slow down in time. But we did some uh, math here on the show. And uh, it's as good as you trust a philosophy major and whatever Kate was. Um, but if you run a $96,500 in MRR at a 15% compounding rate for 12 months, our math indicates that it'll be at an MRR of about 516000 in a year or at an ARR of like $6 million, whatever it is. So it's, gonna, it's growing pretty quickly. Um, it's certainly the kind of growth you hope to see from an early stage company. And with money from F Prime Capital, Ashton Kutcher, and Joe Montana, it is, uh, it is attracting the um, top VCs. The big, the big, yeah, top VCs, celebrity VCs, it, it, right. it shows the deal is hot. Some good people. Will. Yeah. So what, what else is interesting about this company? Um, and I think another reason why people were interested in learning more about it is the, so the founder, Ryan, he, he actually has no desire to raise any more venture capital. Like he didn't, I, I think if he could have um, just completely bootstrapped, he probably would have, but I think he, he knew to scale at the speed he wanted, he needed a little bit of money in the beginning. But so he, the company's already profitable. He, he says he wants to be in control of his own destiny, meaning he maybe doesn't want to sell most of the equity in his company to VCs and then have VCs, you know, that he has to sort of be concerned about as he's building the company. He wants to 
you know, raise this little bit of money and then just kind of scale using, oh, the money that he's actually making, which is not common. And, you know, that's fine because a lot of VC backed companies aren't able to do that. They have to invest a ton of money in the business for years before they actually start making money. But this is given that it is kind of classic enterprise SaaS, I think there's more opportunity here for him to do that. And um, I think it's great that he is sort of like, yeah, I mean, if I don't need to raise anymore, I'm not going to. Yeah. And I know we're a little bit over on time, but like this, this idea of, of profitability, self-sustenance and yeah. freedom is going to become a bigger theme on this show as time goes along. Um, we know about the WeWork layoffs. Everyone knows about the Uber layoffs. I think Fair is also laying off some people. That's oh, really? three soft bank back companies that I've seen doing layoffs. I just saw that on TechMeme before the show. Um, so there is some cracks in the late stage market. Companies that are profitable like Coinbase and Vendor are going to be in, in a better position. So to me, this is going to be a talking point for the next 12 months. But points to Vendor. And also, uh, this founder should come on the show. We should break our rule and have, uh, have the profitable CEO come on because that would be a fascinating yeah, conversation. Yeah, you'd love that, wouldn't you? Profitable CEO of a SaaS company. I would, I would absolutely love that. You don't even need me to be there, do you? That's, no, it'd be perfect. I'm in. <laughs> um, anyways, we should, we should shut up. All right, okay, yeah, let's as wrap always, this up. Uh, yeah, I'd like to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, and I'll see you soon. All right. See you next week. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, And we will see you all right here next week. Um, to quote their medium post, people who have shaped the world is an observation so often made it would be bereft of interest where the, a- <laughs> this is too weird. Wait, Chris, cut, the, cut that out. <laughs> I can't read well, this out loud. It, it's bereft, not bereft. Yeah. Just- <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. Okay. Can we, can, why don't we back up and, I'll, and just pick up where I said, what is a Hrithikon, Kate? And then just start okay. again. Yeah, Chris, cut that out.